The few times that we've been on the topic of gender affirming care or transgender medicine, where I have, you know, kind of raised my hand and mentioned some concerns I have, it wasn't met with, okay, that's like, that's a really good point. I think that you're wrong because of A, B, and C. It's okay, that line of questioning is transphobic and bigoted, and we will not be having any of that. It was really disappointing because one of the reasons why I was so excited to go to medical school was to be able to engage in these more complex ethical and cultural discussions. So realizing that these issues that I, I feel like would be made so much richer and so much better if both sides were able to, to discuss their concerns, that's not allowed. And it's deemed as hate speech. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, folks, today's episode is going to be really interesting. We have here an anonymous guest for an audio-only episode, and anonymity gives us a, a special opportunity to learn things that a young whistleblower has to say about what is going on in our medical system and in academia today. I am here with Sarah. She is a third-year medical student as well as a Navy veteran and a certified paramedic. She reached out to me because as a medical student, she has an up-close-and-personal look at what is going on in medical student training programs today. She has some specific examples of concerns that are her reasons for reaching out, and I'm so glad that she had the courage and willingness to, to show up anonymously on my podcast to give you all an inside view as to what is going on. I don't yet know what stories she has to tell us. All I know is that she has some. So Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for what you do. Yeah, of course. Um, so we were chatting about your background and you feel like your time in the Navy and your experience as a paramedic influence your perspective in medical school. How so? Well, I've really grown up around these issues, and I, I grew up in a very liberal household. I have two gay mothers. Um, we, uh, we knew transgender people uh, growing up. Uh, working in the medical field, uh, it's something that I see on a daily basis with the patients uh, that I treat, and certainly in the Navy. Um, particularly between uh, 2013 and 2020, where these transgender programs in the military um, became a lot more, uh, it became something that people could, um, could live their true selves and, and come out in. Uh, we started building these transgender programs in the Navy, and I was actually a part of those. Uh, and so I, I got to see another side of uh, 
uh, transgender medicine and gender affirming care in the military. Um, why, why was there assumed to be a need for that to be a military program? Or how was that portrayed to you, at least? So it, I, I couldn't say specifically other than the fact that uh, a lot of these were grown out of Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, and uh, a lot of the DEI programs that were beginning to come out of the military. Um, but yeah, it uh, was, I don't know why specifically we started integrating these uh, transgender programs other than the fact that there was a push to um, be uh, completely inclusive of um, all Title IX um, beneficiaries, uh, uh, gender, sex, um, race, religion. And so uh, that was one of those things that was protected both inside the military and out uh, is people's gender expression. And so these transgender programs were created so that even under even on deployment and at these at these military sites, um, people could receive hormone therapy, gender affirming surgeries. During your time seeing that program, did you ever have concerns that these medical interventions they were offering might negatively impact people's physical fitness? Because I, I imagine that being physically fit is a huge part of, of being in the Navy or in the military. Um, what, what were your thoughts on that at the time and how has that evolved over time? Uh, yes, to, to your question, but a bit of background is that I, I have found over the years that, um, physical fitness in all of its iterations is, uh, kind of a concern that I've had for them, um, had in the military that just in general, the focus on, um, being physically fit and being able to, um, perform the tasks that, um, are required for us and being able to pass our physical fitness exam, uh, our physical fitness tests. Um, those are becoming easier and easier to, um, to be able to fail and, and still stay in. So that's kind of the, the backdrop of, um, of this issue, but for, uh, transgender folks in general, uh, it's very, it can be very logistically complicated to be in some of these forward deployed locations and still, uh, receive that kind of, uh, gender affirming care. Um, so their hormones would have to be, um, shipped to, uh, wherever we were on the ship, um, they'd have to come in and receive um, that kind of uh, to receive their weekly hormone injections. And a lot of the side effects that came with that, everything from mood disturbances to, um, you know, physical body aches and feeling unwell, um, those were all um, very real things that these patients dealt with and that they were seen in medical for and that they lost that um, we lost workplace productivity uh, because of that. It never seemed like the standards were different. I, I, I come to this very naive to the subject of, of how anything works behind the scenes in the Navy. But um, when I, when I think of the Navy, I think of people who have 
strong physical prowess. And I imagine people have been excluded for all kinds of medical reasons. Like I'd imagine that if you're diabetic or, you know, that there are just various conditions that would be not a fit um, for that type of service. Did it seem to you as someone who clearly knows more, (laughs) a ton more about me uh, about the subject than I do, that um, that maybe the same standards of fitness were not being held for people on the basis of their identity compared to, let's say, someone with a different medical condition with a different type of dependency on the medical system, but about that kind of same level of overall impairment or dependency? Absolutely. And yes, to begin with, so mental health care and a lot of aspects of physical health care too are are very lacking in the military. And particularly in a forward deployed setting, there's a lot of things that that the average person just has to suck it up or has to deal with it. But there more and more are becoming issues that um, are EI concerns that um, that a person could file an uh, uh, equal uh, um, EA, I'm sorry, that a person can file an equal um, opportunity, EO, wow, sorry, <laughs> uh, that um, these sailors can file equal opportunity complaints if they um, have a concern that um, they feel like they were treated poorly or treated differently because of one of these protective classes. And this uh, transgender issue is one of those, uh, became one of those issues. So there are plenty of examples where a person struggling mentally um, maybe receives um, less sensitive or uh, less um, less caring um, mental or emotional health care uh, just because we need to get the job done. But for any type of um, LGBTQ uh, concerns where if they are um, in their eyes treated poorly, that uh, um, that's a potential uh, EO complaint that could be filed. Um, that's I found that that really impacted how the Navy went about caring for these folks because um, it became a protective class and, and they have to make sure that they avoid uh, any EO complaints with regards to that. So um, for a lot of things that the average person just has to deal with not having a certain medical uh, a certain medical condition addressed, these folks were able to to have that and to and to access that. Seems like one of the many complicated ramifications of mixing up identity politics with healthcare. This idea that it's possible to have an identity that requires medicalization is completely novel to the the trans trend of the 21st century. Um, and, you know, we talk about that in our film, uh, No Way Back, the reality of gender-affirming care. Lisa Marciano comments that it, it seems really hard to kind of square those two things, right? Identity, politics, and a, a medical issue. So what makes this really unique is that we're not talking about sort of what it, what is the criteria or the cutoff for someone who has a physical or mental health condition that needs to be managed and still wants to be in the military. We're talking about people who might be starting off 
physically healthy and capable, but are actively choosing on the basis of their sense of identity and their beliefs about their identity to um, take drugs and perhaps have surgeries that have a negative impact on their health. And then those present additional healthcare burdens in a system where everything has to be super efficient and people really need to be up to the task. And so then the, the rules get bent. Absolutely. And I know we are more talking about like what I've seen in medical school, but, but since we're on the topic, that's absolutely something that I've seen. And it, it really was something that grew to be concerning for me because um, I never really saw the two, the two issues as linked, but uh, kind of the, the two perspectives that I had coming into this are, are one, what I learned coming into the Navy when I went to boot camp and um, learned how to become a sailor. Everything was about, um, uh, you know, one military, one, um, one unifying force. We all had the same haircut going in. We all wore the same uniform. Um, we all addressed each other in the same manner. Um, and our, our unique qualities that, that made us different were not important. And that was sort of what, that was sort of the purest form of diversity that it doesn't matter what your skin color was, where you came from. Um, you don't bring any of that into the military and that when you're outside of the military, you can be this, this individualistic person. But when, um, you know, when you're in uniform, when, um, when you're in the fight, it's, um, it's one unifying force. And, and so when I was in this, um, you know, forward deployed setting and, um, and I began with this, uh, with this transgender program, um, I didn't really connect the two together. And again, I had come from a place where I, um, I have a very liberal background and I, uh, I brought that with me wherever I went. And I, um, my experience with transgender people, um, growing up was, was they were just, they were just family friends. They, you know, were, um, people very important to me in my life and that, um, you know, these very few folks who are going through the program, they, you know, deserved kindness and compassion and non-judgment. But the, the longer that I did it, I, I started to realize the discrepancy that one of the things that, that was coming up one of the things that was resulting from these programs is that there was this focus on um, individualism in the military. So it was becoming about, you know, what is your gender expression? What are your pronouns? What, um, you know, what do you want to be referred as? What type of uniform do you want to wear? Um, and that it was, it was not just important, but necessary that we take that into account and that we accommodate that. And that just seemed very, um, one, against everything that the military stands for, that it, it doesn't matter who you, um, who you love or, or who you are inside, liberal, conservative, um, gay, straight, that, um, you know, when you're in uniform, none of that matters. Um, so 
that that is definitely an evolution of thought that I had during this time. And also the fact that um, being in a forward deployed setting, just realizing all of the resources that were going towards this gender affirming care um, <laughs> at the expense of the mission, you know, that people were actively not able to um, perform the physical ability tests you know, due to um, due to side effects or, or uh, unintended weight gain. Um, and that wasn't something that could be challenged. Hmm. Oh, okay. So was that when you first started questioning anything related to how gender is handled in the States today? Uh, yes and no. So it's certainly when I started to have concerns about military readiness. Um, and I also had concerns about, um, just how, uh, how far like swinging to the left on, on this issue of focusing on the individual, um, uh, affirming these, um, things at the expense of say, like resource allocation and taxpayer dollars and, um, and just, you know, being able to, exactly. And that's where that started, but it wasn't until I got into medical school where I was really hoping to be able to explore a lot of these ideas and, and, um, debate and learn, um, that my concern shifted to the fact that this, I, I think this is becoming an ideology. And that it's not so much that we are doing this, it's that there is no room to raise concerns about it. What were your uh, initial motives for going to med school? I, I love science and want to help people. <laughs> uh, no. Um, so I... I belong in, in medicine and I belong in emergency medicine. I've, um, I've been a paramedic over 10 years and, um, it's, it's what I was meant to do. And I, and I have a lot of hobbies and joys and passions in life, but as far as what I choose to do as a career, it's, it, it's a natural fit. And, it initially began, I, I always knew, even when I um, went to paramedic school, that I'd eventually want to continue on um, to higher level education. So, oh, I'll, you know, eventually become a doctor. And throughout my time as um, like a lower level medical provider, it, it, I became more and more certain, um, especially when you interact with say physicians that you, you kind of disagree with and you tell yourself, Oh, I, you know, I'm never going to work under a physician again. I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to make my own, <laughs> I'm going to make my own decisions and I will always choose to treat patients. Right. Um, you know, as my younger self, that was a lot of the, the reason and motivation to, um, to go to medical school. Now that I, uh, have been doing this for a lot more years and I am in medical school. I, I know and recognize that it, um, that anybody, not, not just doctors have the capacity to treat people with kindness and to make a difference in, in people's lives. 
But I also recognize that physicians hold a lot of social weight um, and a lot of um, power to push for change um, because of the cultural standing that they have. And so that's really important to me. So it's not so much that I just, I want to be a a doctor because I think that um, anymore, I don't want to be a doctor because I think that it's the only way to help people. Um, I'm, I'm more committed because I, I want to use that. So you've been in med school for three years now. Um, you've, you've worked as a paramedic and your, your ultimate goal is to remain in emergency medicine. Yes. All right. And that's why you were initially contacted me. The military stuff was really a bonus uh, to get your inside perspective on that. But um, tell me what it is that you've been seeing that, that caused you to feel so concerned that you wanted to reach out to me. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing was a, a very early realization that there's just a, a complete lack of discourse on this or a, a um, an inability to raise concerns about this issue. The, the few times that I have, um, so uh, the few times that we've uh, been on the topic of gender affirming care or transgender medicine, where I have, you know, kind of raised my hand and um, mentioned some concerns I have, it, it wasn't met with, okay, that's like, that's a really good point. Um, I, I think that you're wrong because of A, B, and C. It's okay. That line of questioning is transphobic and bigoted, and we will not be having any of that. And that, um, not only has the, it, I mean, that's happened multiple times, although at this point, I, um, I don't mention that kind of thing anymore, but, um, it, was really disappointing because one of the reasons why I was so excited to go to medical school was to be able to engage in these uh, more complex um, uh, ethical and cultural discussions because the world is full of gray. You know, there's, there's a lot of gray in the world. And a lot of these topics are, are really, they're hard. Uh, everything from um, from abortion access to transgender medicine. And so realizing that um, that these issues that I, I feel like would be made so much richer and so much um, better if both sides were able to to discuss their concerns, um, that that's not allowed. and it's deemed as hate speech. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients, but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. 
But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Even in medical school. So it comes down to this issue of civil discourse and professional discourse. So on that note, I mean, when, when, it, when we think about any professional field and how we make progress in that field, how we make new discoveries, establish new standards of, of treatment or protocol, or, um, or how we evolve technology and practices as a society, there's, there's sort of a general ethos that I thought was the standard growing up. Um, I, maybe I took it for granted um, that when, when there's disagreement in a field, that that can be constructive because there's always going to be people who have a more pioneering spirit, people who are more open to novel ideas and the first to jump on board. And then there's always going to be people with a more conservative bent, not necessarily a politically conservative bent, but people who are more cautious by nature, who like to see how things work and whether they work long-term before they fully endorse them. These are just variations in human temperament that uh, create forms of diversity that I think are necessary for a healthy society. If, if we were all pioneers, uh, we'd, we live in a very unstable world. And if we were all cautious, then nothing new would ever happen and it would be boring, right? So it, life requires a balance of the two. And in any professional field, generally the two can work cohesively such that you know the pioneers are the ones breaking new ground and then the the cautious rule followers are the ones who can ask whether this stands the test of time whether it stands up to scrutiny and and so on and generally it's the people who are holding back that provide the important questions to test the merit of new ideas because out of all the new ideas some are going to work in the long term and a lot are just an interesting idea that turns out that uh you know we can't afford it for one reason or another or it actually has some unintended consequences that aren't going to work out. So generally the questions posed by the the cautious people um what I hear you describing you were expecting in med school was like that the cautious people could present the questions and then the the people on the frontiers could say great question. Actually, you're right. We need to do more research on that. Or 
So glad you asked. You know, we have looked at that, and here's what the studies show, right? That that there can be a productive dialogue there. But instead, there's become this norm that you're pointing out, where when people who are more cautious express a concern, um, it's just the discussion is silenced, and they use these emotional abuse tactics to shut it down. They they guilt trip people and name call them and and assassinate their characters sometimes on the basis of asking these questions. And so then what happens if we lose that dynamic, that productive dynamic that ensures that a field can move forward into new territory um, sustainably <laughs> without causing uh, unnecessary damage? Um, I, I worry about that dynamic. And it's concerning to hear that that's going on in medical school. It's not surprising based on what I've witnessed the outcomes of that being, but you're getting this firsthand view of it. Yeah. And again, I, I come into this. I, I mean, there's been so many things <laughs> throughout the years that I've been wrong on. And, and I come into this knowing that I could be wrong on a lot of these things. Um, and I, I welcome those other perspectives, but, uh, we can't have any of those discussions. And for example, in one of the lectures that, uh, that we had on uh, gender affirming care and, um, and obtaining a social history and the use of pronouns. Um, so we were discussing gender affirming care, um, for adolescents. And I had mentioned that, I was having a really hard, because this lecture came just a week after uh, or a couple of weeks after we had learned about eating disorders. And I had mentioned that I'm actually having a really hard time underst understanding the, the finer distinctions between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria. Because if you take out like the specific words of like gender versus body, the definitions are essentially exactly the same, that it's a, a person who doesn't feel comfortable in the way that they look or the way that people perceive them, and they want to change um, something about their physical appearance in order to better match their outsides. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask about, like, what, you know, what are possibly the downstream negative effects of that, of just immediately um, pushing to, uh, pushing gender affirmation, um, when this sort of distinction that, when I can't quite see a distinction between them just wanting to appear a different way, which my goodness, like being a, being a young woman, like growing up, I, I know exactly what that means. It's awful. It's awful when your outside doesn't match your inside. Um, and and you are not as skinny or beautiful or um you know clear skinned um or um bright and sunny or um you know silky smooth hair as the person that you want to be um you know i i understand what um what that feels like and I, i'm having a hard time understanding how to distinguish that from this gender dysphoria that um that we're saying is is incredibly valid and the, and the way to overcome that is through affirming the person's gender. And, um, I, it went 
not only did it go nowhere, um, but that line of questioning is transphobic. And it, and it wasn't, let's figure out how to properly distinguish that because we don't want to accidentally um, affirm somebody who, who dislikes their body because other people are nasty to them, you know, or other people are telling them that they're not worthy. Um, people say some horrible things to, to, um, you know, little girls or, you know, young, young boys, um, that, and we never got that discussion. Um, and in another example, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, there's, uh, there's no focus on anybody else outside of the transgender community who um, might be, I, I don't like saying the word harmed because I, I think that that's also an overused term. But um, one of the discussions that we had was uh, the, the importance of the use of pronouns and, and why you always ask people um, it 100% of the time uh, at the beginning of every single encounter you always ask their pronouns no matter how much you think that their um that their sexual identity aligns with their gender identity and uh, it kind of those universal precautions and i had mentioned that there might be some room for uh, discretion on this because ha- having been in the military but also having worked with a lot of these like elderly veteran gentlemen where, um, where someone, where we could walk into a room, um, with someone and assume their gender and say, hi, ma'am, how are you doing today? And they say, I, you know, I, um, I actually go by he, him on the other side of the the token, we might be walking into a room with a 65 year old, you know, 40 year veteran of, of the military and say, Hello, uh, so and so. What gender pronouns do you prefer? And they could say, "What are you talking about? Obviously, I'm a man." Like, you know, it, am I giving the wrong impression? Um, and they could be offended by that, um, you know, and it could offend their masculinity. And when bringing up that point, it devolved into, "Well, this is, you know, that's, uh, you know, white supremacist cisgender normative." Um, and that they are just going to have to deal with it, um, which is really concerning. And this is uh, an audio-only episode, so people, if anybody's watching on YouTube, they can't see me face palming. Um, so you brought up two important points, and I'm sure you have many more. But I want to I want to pause to respond. So you were talking about the difference between. Um, gender affirmation and body dysmorphia in adolescence. And then you were talking about this new standard that you always ask people their pronouns 100% of the time, which sounds incredibly annoying and virtue signaling and culturally incompetent with so many people. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the same people oftentimes who are so big on these practices, they care about, they claim to care about cultural diversity and they claim, as you're saying, that to challenge the idea that you should always ask someone their pronouns is is this white supremacist, of course, they like to label things white supremacist and so on, as if this is a, a normal standard in, in non-white, non-Western countries that couldn't be further from the truth. 
I mean, I feel like it would break these people's minds open to see how relatively conservative many other cultures are, including many non-white, non-Western cultures when it comes to um, understanding the reality of biological sex and and respecting that. Um, So yeah, it's like this sort of like gender uberalis thing, right? That, that, uh, pandering to this particular population has to take precedence over so many other things, including sensitivity to the needs of different populations, including having natural interactions with honestly the vast majority of people who uh, don't want to play this game. Um, and and I can imagine it could be confusing for people who for whom you know they're new to this culture or English is not their first language. Um, and then what to speak of how that compromises trauma informed care for detransitioners. So in my work with detransitioners, um, you know, th- many of them maybe had complex trauma before they transed and detransed. Um, that might've been part of what drove them into it. But even if they didn't have complex trauma before they went through it, now they have complex trauma from going through all of that, both medically, physically, and mentally, emotionally. And some of, some of the trauma that they experience is sort of emerging from this haze of thinking they were trans, realizing that it was all actually something else and that this is just making them feel worse coming to terms with the shock and pain of kind of where they're finding their bodies, oftentimes very, very young in life and finding that they're, they're suffering um, at, at a level of unwellness that many people don't experience until later in life. And then not being able to get away from constant reminders of their trauma because some detransitioners emerge from this saying, I feel like I was in a cult. I feel like I was in a body modification cult and I sacrificed everything um, to to a group that's brainwashed and that did, never had my best interest at heart. Many detransitioners report saying that. And so to emerge from that into this world where they cannot get away from constant reminders of that cult that they feel like they were in that personally harmed them, that harmed their bodies, um, can make them feel crazy. It can make them feel on the edge of despair. And it can cause them to not get the help that they need. I've, I've heard this. I mean, detransitioners need... M- far more medical care and psychiatric care, ideally, than the average, you know, age-matched person, right? Um, but who can blame them for not wanting to set foot in a medical setting when A, medical settings are where this all happened, and then B, in a medical setting, they have to constantly be reminded that everyone in the medical system still believes in this stuff. And then, then if they can jump through those hoops, if they can get past the constant trauma reminders that are sort of reactivating their PTSD symptoms by by being asked what their pronouns are everywhere they go. If they can get past that, then people don't know how to help them and the, the care that they need often isn't covered by insurance. And there's not even ICD codes for detransition. So it all just gets coded as more gender affirming care in the system. So then we, we don't have the statistics on detransition. I mean, at this point, I'm tying in a bunch of different issues. But there's a major lack of cultural competency in these practices, and it strikes me as blissfully unaware and and so incredibly misguided to hear that your your peers in medical school really think that 
asking 100% of people what their pronouns are 100% of the time is actually a culturally competent maneuver when it's clearly not, and thinking that nobody's harmed in the process. I know your, your caution around the word harm is justified because it is overused, but when you think about how this how this affects detransitioners, like I've just heard from so many of them that, that wish they could get away from it, that w- wish they could just go to sleep for a hundred years and wake up when it's all over, wake up when nobody's asking anybody their pronouns anymore. And we're just back to before this all began um, as a culture, right? And and who knows where, where we're headed, but um, it seems so, so awkward. And I've definitely filled out medical forms um, where I'm asked my pronouns, but I don't, um, I haven't had that experience of, uh, medical providers actually verbally asking me my pronouns before. And that's scary to know that that's coming down the pipeline because that seems like it's a new standard that's being taught at least in some medical schools. Oh, and I wanted to respond to the thing you said about <laughs> body dysmorphia, but, but let's, let's come back to that at some other point. Cause I've just said a lot. Oh, no, I, I mean, I, that's, certainly an issue that I'm very, um, very concerned about, again, having been a, been a young woman myself and, and understanding, you know, what it feels like to be, to be very uncomfortable, um, in how imperfect, um, I was compared to everything that I saw, um, out in the world. But, uh, your point about, just being hyper-focused and hyper-concerned about um, having trauma-informed care for a very small subset of, of patients is, is really something that I have come to realize as well. And uh, not, not just focusing on trauma-informed care, but, but just the idea that the words that we say and the, the way that we the way that we talk about certain issues, um, because they have the potential to, um, to impart microaggressions or to, to be offensive to somebody that we have to eliminate those. But there is for this, you know, um, minority population, but then there's no ability to raise concerns about a, a larger majority of the population who, um, might be harmed or microaggressed or, um, have concerns about the alternative. And so just a very personal example. Um, one of the, so one of the ways in which medical school has been very, um, disappointing and, and really uh, there was sort of like a grieving, oddly, like a grieving process that happened, um, when we, when we turned towards like their, our developing human lectures and learned about sex differentiation and, and human development and sexual reproduction, because it was in so many other aspects of medicine, when we cover cardiology or pulmonology or nephrology, they could use what I would consider as more like unscientific terminology, there were a lot of questions um, because they, they give a lot of practice questions, but there would be questions on, um, you know, uh, Zoe is a 13-year-old affirmed girl um, who was presenting with a rash. Um, 
I don't really know what that means. I don't know if affirmed girl uh, means that she was born a female or assigned female at birth or so th- there was a lot of um, what I would consider like less specific um, terminology. But when it came to human development, where this is like very science, this is very science heavy. It's, um, you know, it's very important that you distinguish between men versus women. Um, everything was reduced to, um, this is XX genotype. This is XY genotype. And so, so many of the things that I consider that I find magical about women, just absolutely incredible, wonderful things that, I mean, as a woman, I'm biased, but that, that women, um, are made of and that we, that we can accomplish with our bodies. Um, that it was almost like that was taken away from me and, um, not to make it about me, but, uh, you couldn't say, yeah, you know, you couldn't say that, um, women's, um, pelvic outlet is larger than men's, um, pelvic outlet, um, to aid in childbirth. It's that the XX genotype, um, presents with this and the XY genotype presents with this. Um, and you can't even male and female are, are things that, that typically come with like the asterisks. And, you know, when I say male and female, it means that, you know, I'm, I'm just referring to this genotype. It has nothing to do with gender expression. All of these disclaimers, um, come with this. And, you know, it really, um, it was very reductionist and, and really sad to be privy to, um, some of this medical knowledge that is truly incredible. I mean, it is magical. Um, if anyone, if you've ever read like the magic of reality by Richard Dawkins, like one of my favorite books ever, um, it, that's like one of the themes is that like the more that you can understand something and more you can like delve into the science, the more beautiful it is. Like understanding how a rainbow works helps, like it makes a rainbow even more beautiful. And I went into, um, these, these lectures so excited to, discover how human biology is even more beautiful than I could have imagined. And there was like a real grieving process around it because it, you couldn't have pride in being a woman anymore. Nice. I see the heartbreak in your face and I I imagine listeners can hear it in your voice as well. Like what we lose when we give up our rights to use the word man and woman to mean the same thing that they meant 20 years ago and for the last many hundreds of years, um, thousands, I just don't know how far back English goes, but (laughs) the, and, and how awkward it makes it to communicate. And then this, this erasure and, and diminishment of women and even going back to things outside of the world of human development, reproduction and, uh, sexual differentiation even when you're talking about Zoe, the affirmed girl with the rash on her arm, when you're talking about things like that, it seems like a lot of this is designed to minimize the significance of sex differences to other systems of the body as well. I mean, men and women, are our skin can be different, right? And the way that a 13-year-old going through puberty, the way that that person's body's natural 
production of hormones is going to impact their skin is going to be different. And it probably also matters to Zoe whether she's experiencing her own body's natural cycles of estrogen and progesterone or whether this is a kid on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, because guess what? That's going to affect your skin too. Hormones affect every system of the body. So to see all of this sort of pandering at the expense of truth in the medical system is really concerning. I'm imagining that skin is one of the systems that is less affected by hormones, but I know it is affected by hormones. I know detransitioners have had skin problems. They've had problems with every system of the body. There are so many women who have gone on testosterone and it made their skin really oily, their pores really large, their skin feel more thick and coarse. There are men who's gone on estrogen who look 10 years younger because of its impact on the skin. And that's just one system of the body. It's literally the most superficial system of the body that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like there's, it, we haven't fully faced the cost yet of this as a society because we don't know what it's like yet to have only doctors that were trained this way and the the lack of information as to sex differences. But I do know that our lack of information uh, based on real sex differences does hurt women in the long run. I can't remember where I learned about this, but I learned at one point about how um, for a long time, female lab animals as well as women were left out of scientific experiments because our hormonal cycles make us too unpredictable. So there's this idea that, well, just use males because they're not as unpredictable. And the assumption there is that if it applies to males, it applies to females equally. And that's a dangerous assumption that turned out to be untrue. And so the the impact on women when it comes to things like heart attack detection has been an issue, crash test dummies being built to male specifications rather than female specifications. I know that our skulls are different from reading Leonard Sachs. I'm a big fan of Leonard Sachs. I, I love his books on on gender and um you know the fact that um men's skulls are designed to withstand concussions better than women's skulls are. Right. And then if you look at as you were saying, the angle of our pelvis and why that matters, not only for childbirth, but for other things too. Um, it's it's tragic how much is being lost and, and that this is compromising patient care. It's putting this sort of social agenda in front of providing the best quality of care and the best information and the most modern technology to our patients. There is markedly decreasing willingness to impart any kind of discomfort on patients whatsoever, um, including uh, saying something that might be deemed as offensive to them. And uh, it's very important to keep in mind how, how the words that you say can, can hurt someone's feelings and, and be offensive. Um, But at some point there has to be, you can't be so willing to impart discomfort on a patient that it's going to compromise their their patient care. And so, for example, one of the things that we learned uh, in medical school is uh, n- not just to um, no longer refer to people as as woman or uh, or man, or even use things like AFAB and AMAB, assigned female birth, assigned male at birth. Um, not just not using that, but even words like vagina can be uh, offensive um, uh, or traumatic for certain uh, 
uh, say, transgender males who are very uncomfortable with the fact that they still have a vagina. So you need to use different words for it. Um, but again, that completely negates the fact that if someone were to, if a doctor were to do a pelvic exam on me and to, you know, use the term like first genital orifice versus vagina, like that would be very, um, demeaning to me. And, um, and again, you have to open up those conversations to, to say, okay, like, how can we be most sensitive to, to everybody? But you still have to be willing to impart some discomfort because that is the nature of medicine. Nobody, uh, nobody likes getting pelvic exams, but it isn't, you know, some people have had horrific trauma, but it's still important that, that we do that because, um, you know, overall it's going to be important, um, for that patient's for that patient's medical care. Um, but I think we're getting to the point where we are so afraid to, um, you know, prov- to impart any kind of discomfort, um, on patients. Uh, and I, I have a lot more to say about that, but I do want to get back to the gender dysphoria thing. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Yeah, it's it's sad. It's concerning that this whole system is, is bending to people's patterns of discomfort with reality, right? That like, if you're female, you have a vagina and rather than the world sort of maintaining some kind of grip on reality, we're now bending reality because we're saying there, there are these people with this very special condition called gender dysphoria that is much more special than any other mental condition, any other physical condition. And these people are upset about a fact of reality. Like I could be upset 
that there are four walls in this room because I like to be outdoors, but it's, I still have to work within the confines of this room if I'm going to get work done in my office, you know? So it's like, here's this concrete, tangible fact of how your body works that is relevant to your healthcare needs, relevant to getting the checkups you need for things like cancer prevention and whatever you need medically. And the whole medical system is bending, like, how can we avoid triggering these people's feelings by mentioning that there are four walls in this room and that we're not outside right now? It's like, how far, how far are we willing to let this go? And, and where's, where's the loss of efficiency and, and what are the costs to the average healthcare consumer and the average patient? With regard to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, that you were trying to raise these perfectly ordinary questions about help me understand the difference, which by the way, if I feel like if a medical student or a psychology student were to ask about any other two conditions, help me understand the difference between these two conditions, right? Like, I don't feel like there would be so much pushback. I feel like they'd be like, great, here's a differential diagnosis. That's there's a term for it, differential diagnosis, right? So yes. you were saying I don't understand the differential diagnosis between gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia. And body dysmorphia we know is a component of eating disorders. What I wanted to circle back to was um, first of all that you made a great point, and second of all the eating disorder component, because um, that's something I actually have questions for you around. I noticed some trends in my training in the mental health field um, and in what patients were bringing to me that again, we're sort of expected to depart from the normal standard of care with regard to how we talk about eating disorders. So whereas if there was no gender dysphoria and just an eating disorder, the treatment would be to to get that patient eating and sort of work on their phobia and avoidance of food, right? And to address any unhelpful thought patterns around the food, like counting calories and restricting and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I noticed that there seemed to be like this special exception around gender stuff and eating disorders, where if a patient has gender dysphoria and an eating disorder, what what we were told and, and what I was seeing patients were expecting was that um, you should understand that the eating disorder is a manifestation of the gender dysphoria. Um, because this person isn't comfortable with, let's say it's a, a female person, right? She's not comfortable having feminine curves. And so she's restricting to try to avoid looking female. And so what this tells us is not that we need to work on body image or eating healthily or letting go of obsessive compulsive thought patterns that are associated with both the eating disorder and the body dysmorphia and the gender dysphoria, but actually we need to prioritize treating the gender dysphoria. We need to get this kid on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and get them the gender-affirming care they need because that's what's driving the eating disorder. It's the discomfort with being female. We need to help this kid escape the pressure of their the puberty that their body's trying to go through. And so it's almost kind of this like, well, let's not treat the eating disorder. Let's let's enable the eating disorder. Let's enable the restriction because it's unfair for this uh, female to have to put on weight and develop curves if she's really a male deep down. I mean, it sounds crazy the way I'm saying it, but I really feel like that was sort of the logic that I was exposed to. And I want to know if you were seeing the same thing in medical school. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think one of the 
unintended consequences or, or maybe the, the reasons behind that is, um, I, I think that they, uh, there is a tendency to look at gender differently. Um, and really, um, for lack of a better term, uh, place it in this, um, like binary box of, um, you know, gender means, are you more feminine or more masculine? And, the consequence of that is that if, if people, and I mean, God forbid, if, if, if a kid or an adolescent or adult, um, is a bit non-conforming and they are, um, a woman, but they're less feminine or they're a man, but they're less masculine, um, that's immediately labeled as, uh, as gender non-conforming or, or gender dysphoria, as opposed to their, they are an XX or XY man or woman. And they're just different than what we like, than what society has labeled as the expectation to be. And that's, that's fine and wonderful and incredible that we have that kind of uniqueness in the, um, in the world. But, um, it is the fact that they're, I have found that it is because they have, um, that gender has that definition. It, literally, the way that my medical school defines gender is um, a social construct used to delineate characteristics which a, side, a society or culture designates as feminine or masculine. It, it, in other words, if a circular if a woman, definition, yeah, if a woman is more, it, so if a woman prefers to wear pants and play with trucks and those things that society deems as more masculine. That isn't just that that's what they like and that's who they are. It's that there's something wrong with their, that their outsides don't match their insides, which again is pretty much as sexist, I I think, as it gets. That if you, you know, if you prefer blue and trucks over pink and dolls and that doesn't align with your, with your sex, then um, that is gender dysmorphia. You know, I, I think that that, has a lot to do with it um, in that we're not just teaching people to be uh, that, that we're not just teaching people that it's okay, that they're a little bit different, just as you would with, with someone who is horrified that they're not a size zero, um, you, you know, that, that it's okay. And, um, you know, we can be who we are um, and hang out with, people who love us for who we are and, you know, how we interact with others in the world. And, and that's okay. And we don't have to change that. So um, I definitely think that that's a part of it. So far in medical school, has the topic of detransition come up at all? Not once, literally not once. I, I, I mean, I didn't even learn about detransition and um, until I, started looking more into this, um, on the outside, but yeah, which is really concerning because I, I mean, I have, I, you know, so far I've talked a lot about, um, I've talked a lot about the academia side of things, but you know, a big portion of medical school is, you know, interacting with patients. And I mean, I have seen some horrific, um, 
complications of gender affirming care. And, um, you know, I've literally cared for, um, people that are near death septic, um, you know, from these, uh, from these surgeries. And I mean, one person in particular who really stands out in my mind, um, I mean, uh, they, they said that I, you know, they, uh, were in septic shock and, and dying, but in working to get a history and kind of figure out what's, what's going on, which what ultimately was going on was that, um, their, um, they were a male to female transition, their vaginal plasty, the, the canal that was created, a fistula forms between their, their bladder and that vaginal canal. And, um, and there was abscesses in there, but they said that, um, they haven't been able to even touch down there, not one finger for months because of the horrific pain. Um, they, and I mean, the, the swelling and infection was, it was just awful. Um, and so after stabilizing that patient, um, there was no discussion of like what was the appropriateness of that surgery or, or is this a common complication of, um, gender affirming care? Like literally nothing. It was just, Oh, this is, this is something that can happen and move along. Um, when I think for any other post-surgical complication, that is always a natural discussion that happens. Um, I, rotated in a, the urogynecology um, clinic, helping a lot of um, elderly women with um, incontinence um, and prolapse. And complications from that are, are always discussed of like, uh, you know, okay, so these are the pros and cons of, of this um, surgery. And this is why, you know, we still do it. But none of that was, was discussed there. Well, we have five or 10 more minutes and I want to give you the floor to tell as many stories like that as you want, um, whatever you most feel the need to get off your chest. Cause you've seen some stuff. Yeah. Is there more um, where that came from? Oh, so many, uh, really the, one of the, um, biggest concerns, um, that I have to is that we are starting to hyper focus on these um, on these issues at the expense of so many other patients who are deserving of a focus on their mental well being. And so, for example, whenever you do have um, patients concerned with gender dysphoria, I, I mean that. Um, Everything is focused on protecting their mental health so that they, they don't commit suicide or, um, they don't live in fear for the rest of their lives. And that, um, uh, care is focused around, um, being trauma informed and being sensitive to, um, to those issues. But having worked in a lot of other areas in the hospital, I don't see that kind of care taken for, for other patients who are going through horrifically traumatic events. Um, it, for example, I'm 
to keep it relatively broad, but um, there was a, a mother of four that I cared for who's, um, I mean, not even, not even 40 yet. And um, something um, to be overly vague, something left her paralyzed from the chest down very suddenly. And um, it's com- it completely unknown whether it's going to be permanent um, or if she will regain some, um, some use of her lower body. And, you know, so I have done my assessment on her and I've done, um, done uh, history and physical and I, um, it, obviously she's in intensive care. And so I'm going and I'm presenting this patient to the providers and uh, I was going through the plan of care and I had mentioned, you know, this, this all seems pretty comprehensive, but um, one thing that I didn't see was a, um, a psychiatry referral for her. Um, and they were like, why did she say something? Like, did she say something concerning? And I was like, well, well no, but she, she's a mother of four and she's paralyzed now. I, I mean, isn't that like something that we should make sure that she gets access to? And they're like, oh no, we don't do, I, I mean, I'm literally saying verbatim, oh no, we don't do that here. If she, um, you know, has something that she wants to talk about, she can follow up with her PCP, um, on that and get a, a mental health referral. And, um, I don't understand how those two things can happen side by side that, um, you know, I am not saying that, um, that people with gender dysphoria don't deal with horrific traumas. I think I think that they do. And that's something that we need to, to keep in mind. But I mean, we all deal with traumas. We all have horrific things that we're dealing with and, and some of us more than others. And, you know, everyone is deserving of this kind of care. And, and I think that just this hyper focus, um, you, you know, we're triggered to think gender dysphoria. Okay. Focus on mental health, but for, for other things, it's just, well, that's not my, that's not my purview. That's, you know, that's not my deal. She can, you know, follow up later. Um, I think we're missing the point. Wow. That's, um, thank you for sharing. And that must've been so hard to witness. I'm sure you have a lot of those moments as a medical professional where you see someone's life forever changed or a family struck by tragedy or immeasurable loss. And you're just really noticing this continued trend of exceptionalism around gender where it feels like the whole medical system is caving to make that the most important thing and to treat this one population as if they need the world catered to them. And and you're asking, how is this different and how is it costing everybody else? Here's a family struck by immense tragedy and it didn't even occur to anyone that someone who has a family to raise and is in the middle of her life and suddenly lost use of almost all of her body would need to maybe talk to someone about that, like need help coping. Um, Wow. Thank you. Um, We have time for one more story or observation. Anything else you want to bring up? Um, That was, I mean, that really covered 
a lot of it. Uh, I, I guess the, the very last thing that I'll, I'll point out is my, and this is definitely from the medical side of things. I, I'm really concerned with sort of a lack of, um, scientific rigor when it comes to a lot of this in, and it feels very, um, very contradictory where so many of like the, the biochemical and, um, pathophysiologic, uh, things that we learn in medical school are so very science heavy. Um, yet as soon as it comes to this, like this topic of gender studies, um, it becomes very unscientific, um, and very confusing. Um, and it's, I mean, one, it's kind of disappointing because it's, it's medical school and you want things to stand up to, um, scientific rigor and to have, um, scientific definitions. Um, but it's also just very confusing that, um, you know, what we learn about, um, you know, uh, that gender identities can include, you know, trans man, gender queer, gender non-binary, gender fluid. Um, and all of these things are very, like, you can't, uh, nobody can even define that. And, and it's very, uh, it's very confusing and talking about how, um, you know, how sex can be considered a spectrum. Uh, there is one. Yeah. What is it? Um, I, yeah, like one of their actual definitions is they talk about, um, sex and that even sex can roughly be thought of as a spectrum when intersex and trans presentations are taken into consideration. Um, which again, that, that doesn't very offensive feel very, to a lot of intersex people I've talked to. It's, it, it's very offensive. And it also isn't, it doesn't feel rooted in science, especially after the topic of, um, you know, just saying that trans is a gender, um, issue, not a sex issue. And so when you're saying that when you take into account trans presentations, um, sex can be, um, can be a spectrum and not a, uh, and not a binary. It's things like that where when, when they're given side by side with these like incredibly, um, scientifically heavy distinctions of, you know, was there, um, you know, Mullerian agenesis versus Wolfian agenesis, um, in this sexual reproduction of, of a human being, like that's, uh, it's very scientific and yet there's this one as there's well several um, aspects of this that are really concerningly unscientific, uh, but they're still perpetuated as science. I mean, it, it's even within our uh, our program, and it's taught that um, children typically have a um, an idea of their gender um, identity between ages two and three. It's sort of like um, if the new trend were for doctors to ask every patient what their astrological sign is, and then if I could like walk, if I could like march into a doctor's office and be like, "I'm a Capricorn, so therefore um, my medical care needs to consist of," um, I don't know. We need we need to, we need to talk yeah. about like I, I'm I'm trying to think of an analogy of how like astrology stereotypes could even influence medical care, but I can't think of it. I'm I'm losing the attempt at a joke. Um, but 
well, it's like you're not wrong. Yeah. And and how many people are going to be embarrassed by that and feel like they they can't trust their doctors if if they're I mean, I know I feel that way when I'm trying to get into a medical clinic and I, I ask my pronouns on the form, you know, like I'm like, do you recognize that I'm female? Are you going to treat me on the basis of being female? Or if I told you I was male, would you try to pretend that things that apply to men now apply to me? Like, or that my sex doesn't matter when you're providing medical care? Like, how's this supposed to work? But anyway, that's all the time we have. So Sarah, this is the time normally that I ask where can people find you, but you're not looking for people to find you. Um, so anything you want to say in terms of any resources that you personally want to recommend? I know you mentioned The Magic of Reality by Richard Dawkins. Any websites, any anonymous social media accounts that you have or any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, well, I... Um... So public, the uh, um, original podcast that I oh uh, Michael Schellenberger's yeah oh um, you found that, me through that yeah cool. um, that's probably the uh, you know one thing that I would recommend but really it's any place that's willing to have conversations about this so, you know again I I could be wrong you know we we've all been wrong before um, but it's just you, you know it's a willingness to have open, kind, compassionate conversations with people to discuss concerns. Um, and I think public does a really good job, um, with that, but, uh, yeah, thank you for what you do. And thank you for what you do. And if we had more time, I would have loved to ask you where you think things are going and, um, what gives you hope and what you hope to be, see happening in the field in the future. So I'm, uh, I guess since I have an appointment in four minutes, I'll just name that I'm sorry. And I'm sad that I didn't ask you those questions. And I wish that we could end on a more positive note, but I really appreciate your courage in stepping forth and asking to speak with me about this, or actually you stepped forth and I invited you to speak with me, um, but for accepting the invitation. And um, I really hope that I know you have to do what you have to do to get through med school right now. Um, But I really hope that as your career progresses and as you gain status and security, that you are able to stand up for what you believe in and really put patients' interests, including their long-term interests for their health um, front and center. And it's, it's good for me to know that there are people like you in our medical system. And I hope that that brings some relief to some of our listeners who are worried as well. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. 
If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.